is Unexpected with Hannah Love. In this podcast, you will gain a new perspective of how God loves you enough to call you to things that you couldn't have imagined for yourself. Hello, everyone. This is a special edition of Unexpected with Hannah Love, special because today I have brought in one of my sweet friends to share her story. Her name is Stacy Masuk, and I'm really just going to pitch it over to her because she is going to share her life. It is full of the unexpected. So Stacy's story is one that is so full of the unexpected that I felt like it had to be shared with the world. And I couldn't be more honored that you said yes, Stacy, and that you chose to be here and that you are going to be vulnerable enough to share your story and to encourage others out there to see God working in those unexpected places. So I'm just going to throw it over to you. Let us know about you and then just jump in wherever you want to. And I'll hop in every once in a while, but I just want to hear and I want others to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's a privilege for me to be here and get to share a little bit about my story. God has worked in incredible ways in my life, and I feel like it's part of my responsibility to share what He's done in my life and what He's done for me and what He's done for my family. So thank you. I spent the majority of my life in Tennessee's foster care system, entered foster care permanently at the age of three. I'd been bounced back and forth prior to the age of three, but at three, the state finally said, we're pulling you out of your home and we are putting you in foster care permanently. And you're one of how many? I think I'm one of six. Several of my siblings were adopted. And so some of them I only have first names for, but I think the official tally is six. I only had a relationship growing up with my brother. And then as an adult, there is one sister that was adopted that I have a little bit of a relationship with. But so at three, my birth mother was a victim of abuse herself and was in foster care. And she was a drug addict and had multiple men in and out of her home. And in addition to her physically abusing us, her boyfriends would also physically abuse us. And so the state had given her multiple opportunities prior to to me being three years old, to work a plan and to take parenting classes and do the things that she needed to do to be a better mom. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, you know, she didn't do what she needed to do. So the state removed us. At three, I moved into temporary foster home. And I ended up, I remember I ended up, I was sitting at DCS and it was around Christmas time. And the caseworker didn't have a place for me to go, a home to go to. And so I remember, I mean, I can still remember sitting in the cubicle with my belongings in a trash bag next to me and him making phone call after phone call, calling people to try to find a home for me. And he ended up having to take me home to his family so that he could go home. And so I ended up living with the caseworker and his family for the next four years. Mm-hmm. And they had a teenage son who, I can't remember at what age it started, but their teenage son started sexually abusing me. And so I remember reporting it to DCS. And I remember telling this little caseworker, obviously, because I lived in that home, I didn't have the same caseworker. I was assigned a new caseworker. And I remember telling the caseworker, you know, what was happening. And immediately, immediately, the family's response was, 
of course, they're going to defend their birth son. And so I was immediately pulled out of that home and put into a psychiatric hospital Mm -hmm. in Chattanooga. And I lived there for what felt like a month or two. I mean, honestly, when you're that little, it could it could have been a week, but I think it was I think it was at least 30 days I lived there and maybe 60, but at least 30. And so I lived there and I was evaluated and I think they quickly realized that there was nothing wrong with me. Right. And and you were what, six or seven? Yes, I was seven, almost seven at this time. And so they basically told DCS that I could be placed in a home again. And there was this lady that came, she traveled from Nashville to Chattanooga, where I was in this psychiatric hospital, and she traveled to Nashville to meet me. And I feel like this is kind of the the part in my story where you start seeing the hand of God reaching down and saying, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, because at this point is where I start seeing His hand in my life, even though I hadn't, I'd never gone to church, I had never owned a Bible, like I'd never even heard of Jesus up until that point. But looking back now and reflecting as an adult, I can see, okay, no, that's clearly the hand of God in this situation. That was God. That wasn't by mistake. That wasn't by accident. That was God. And so this woman traveled from Nashville. Again, you have to keep in mind, I'm a child in Chattanooga and I was placed with this private foster care agency that was in Nashville. Why Nashville? I have no idea other than God. (laughs) And, you know, this private foster care agency sent this single mom to come visit with me. And we had, I think we had two visits and she decided I was the first foster child she was ever going to have in her home. She had a son. She was going through a divorce and decided that she wanted to start fostering. And she decided that I would be a good fit for her and her son. And when I was released from the psychiatric hospital, I went into her care. Rewinding a little bit, when I was admitted to the psychiatric hospital, I was admitted under the pretense that I would be returning to my family, Mm -hmm. which is the family that I had lived with for four years. The majority of your life. Yeah, the majority of my life. They were my family. And like I remember, I was just completely traumatized by, I'll never forget the day of like getting into the car and the conversation in the car about them coming back and getting to the hospital and the separation between me and my foster mom really my mom at the time, Mm -hmm. who I knew as my mom, the only mom I had really ever known. My birth mother was very absent in my childhood. I remember reading about this, but my birth mom, she would have visitations with me when I was little, and I would be at a therapeutic counseling center playing with toys, and she would walk into the room, and the psychologist said that I wouldn't even look up and acknowledge her presence. Wow. Like, I didn't even know her. And so you can imagine, so the trauma of, there was abuse trauma, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a lot of emotional trauma right. being removed from her care because I didn't have a connection with her. Right. But there was so much trauma being removed from the foster mom, from the lady that I had lived with for those four years and her family. And because I loved her and her family and I didn't know, like, I didn't know what I was saying was wrong and was going to, it was the truth, but I didn't know that it was going to ruin that relationship. my entire childhood up to that point and change 
completely change the course. But again, this is this is the hand of God where you, you start seeing the little tidbits of things that he does in my life that sets me up for obviously being here today and sharing my story. Right. So going back a little bit, so I'm with this woman and, you know, again, all along I thought I was going to be returned to my family, to my foster family that had been my family for four years. But this woman, the single mom, invited me into her home. Whenever I was released from the psychiatric hospital, I moved in with her and her son. And I lived with her for a pretty short period of time. It was, I think it was probably about a year I lived with her. And she was in the middle of a custody battle with her ex-husband. And so there was a point at which she was going to have to move back to Texas in order to have that custody battle over their son. And so unfortunately, what that meant for me was that I was going to move. But what I will say about my time living with her was it's the first time that I really remember any point in my childhood. Like I remember a lot of the traumatic things that had Mm -hmm. happened in my childhood, but it's the first time that I ever remember having a dream Mm -hmm. and having goals and ambitions and owning a Bible and learning about Jesus and going to church and being loved on by the people of the church. And it's really where a lot of those happy memories begin for me. Mm -hmm. And it was very, very difficult to leave her home and to go into another home. And so I moved in with this other family that I Nashville's a small town, so I have to be careful sometimes what I say. But I moved in with this other family that was not a great family, and I had a pretty awful experience, and I actually ended up running away from the foster home. And I remember telling the police officers, I'm like, please don't bring me back. Please don't bring me back. And they did. They brought me back. And what I did at that time was, I mean, we don't always tend to look at children in the context of their environment. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just a cry for help. My bad behavior was a cry for help. Right. And I would lock myself in the bathroom stall at school, and I would just cry. And the principal would come knocking on the bathroom, like, Stacy, you have to come out. You have to go back to class. And I mean, I was just, it was a horrible time in my life. And so I can't say that I was the best child. And um, really what ended up happening because of that was because I was acting out in school, I became a distraction to the rest of the kids. And so they ended up pulling me out of school and putting me in a behavior school. Mm-hmm. And there's a behavior school over off 12th Avenue. And I was in that behavior school. And I was in that behavior school because I was in an awful home environment. And it just wasn't a good situation. And so anyway, so I went to this behavior school and... It was pretty evident early on that I didn't need to be there. I was very different than a lot of the other kids there. And, man, they had one of those dungeon rooms, like one of those padded wall rooms where they, like, lock you in there. (laughs) And you're like, how does that happen in a school? But it happens there, or at least at that point it did. I don't know if that's even legal anymore. But when I was there, now I really sound old, but it's okay. So I will say that my life at that point, Like I had lived with such a great woman and it was just a complete turn from that. And I'm so grateful that God has bigger dreams for us than we can ever have for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this family, every year while I was living with this family, we would go, it would be at some hotel in Nashville, but we would go for these Christmas parties with this private foster care agency that I was with. And we would 
get to mix and mingle with all the other foster families that were a part of this foster care agency. So Santa would come, Santa would have lots and lots of gifts and all the foster kids would go up and they would get their gifts from Santa, but we would mix and mingle as, as different foster families. And I would always remember seeing this woman and she, she'd have this brood of foster kids with her (laughs) and she would dress with, I mean, rhinestone cowgirl hat, tall stiletto boots, spandex pants and a white blouse and a military blazer, (laughs) like just over the top woman. I mean, bright red lipstick, red hair, like bigger than life, bigger than life, extra. And I've been calling her that lately, um, you know, Miss Extra, because she really is extra in every way. And so I would, I remember, you know, seeing this lady and then a lot of her foster kids would dress like that too, just completely over the top. And I would see her and just think, oh, wow, like I want to live with, I want to live with a woman like that. (laughs) Anyway, so, you know, I would just see her annually at this, at this party. Well, my foster family at the time decided that they were no longer going to take care of foster kids and I kind of gave them a run for their money, and I would like to accept a little bit of responsibility for that. <laughs> for that, I think it's a great decision on their behalf. But with that, I didn't have like a plan B on families. But that summer, right before they had announced their retirement, in that summer, I had gone to a counseling program mm-hmm. in downtown Nashville near the near the behavior school. And I had gone to a summer counseling program, and I met this girl at the summer counseling program, and she invited me to spend the night over at her house, and I got permission from all the parties that I needed to get permission from. Mm-hmm. So this, the private foster care agency had to approve me having a sleepover. The state, the Department of Children's Services had to approve me having a sleepover. Everybody approved me having a sleepover <laughs> with this girl at this girl's house. And I went to spend the night over at this girl's house, and it was Miss Extra's house. Wow. Yeah. It was Miss Extra's house. I love that. And so, of course, that makes, at this point, the foster family I'm living with has not announced their retirement. So the sting, I think the sting of that was obviously, it made me pity my situation even more. Right. You know, I'd already. It emphasized what you didn't have. Yeah, what I didn't have. And so, of course, I walk away from that sleepover so sad because, you know, you go to her house and she lived in this big house. Like, I can't even remember. I'm trying to count off the top of my head. Hold on. Like seven, seven bedroom house or something. I mean, she lived in this big house and had all, you know, the trampoline and like all the, all just all the fun things. And you could just tell that her home was so much fun and there was so much joy. Mm-hmm. And then I knew I had to go back to where I was living and it made that sting. It just made things sting that much more. Right. And it wasn't too long after that sleepover that the foster family I was living with decided to retire and Miss Extra said that I could move in with her. And for me, that's like the truly, truly like the beginning of my life. It was a little delayed. I moved in with her when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And so the memories, obviously, that I have after that, I have phenomenal memories. And she ended up, (laughs) she walked into the behavior school, cowgirl hat and all. I actually have a picture of her sitting at the table at the behavior school with her 
cowgirl hat on. And she walked in and she was like, this child does not need to be here. We need to take her out now. She needs to be in a regular school. And But she was my greatest advocate. Mm. I mean, she was truly my greatest advocate. And I mean, she I was heavily medicated as a child. And she, she basically, this is her personality. She was a get it done lady and still is to this day. But she said, you know, as, as a kid, she said, this kid doesn't need to be on medicine. I'm not giving her any more of this medicine. I was, she, so she basically refused to comply with the medication, wow. you know, the doctor's orders in, in my situation. Because she said, you know, this child just needs, this child just needs love. She doesn't need medicine. And so anyhow, she, um, she became my biggest advocate and believed in me. And I think that that's, you know, the part of my story where things change. You know, I, I didn't have opportunities before that point. Mm-hmm. And she just really, she just believed in me and instilled values and taught me to work hard. And, you know, I was always, she always gave me the very best. Always, I mean, everything. I mean, I remember even at Christmas time, like always gave us the best of the best and always demanded that we worked hard, but we also played hard. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I ever saw the ocean, you know, I was almost 11 years old. And I think now to the life that I have with my family and my kids and my kids will never remember a time not seeing the ocean. Right. But I had that moment of where I just stood there and I stared at the ocean and could not like I had never seen the ocean. Right. And just the opportunities that she gave me truly changed the course of my life. And so financially speaking, she did not have excessive financial means to be able to like send me to private school and she worked for a doctor and his wife and she would clean their houses and I remember during the summers in any break that I had with school I would go with her to clean this family's house and she that's what she always did so we would go to multiple people's houses I would clean with her and she would always split the money evenly I'm like she has yeah. house and a bill and bills and all these things to pay for, but yet she valued me so much. She said, "No, you're doing half the work. You're getting half the money." That's amazing. And so I was able to save for things, you know, as a kid because she was generous and, and get you know generous and paying me for my work. And but this family saw a lot of potential in me. One of the one of these families that we cleaned for, and they said, "You know, we really want to help her. Like, what can we do for her?" And at this point in my life, I had basically been passed every year by the school system. And because I had moved so many times, I had gone to so many different schools that I had missed really critical parts of the foundation of my learning Mm -hmm. and my education. And so what what they did was they said, you know, we really want Stacy to go to a private school. This family said that. And of course, my, my foster mom couldn't afford to send me to private school. And this family was able to afford to send me to a private school. And they said, Stacy, you can go to any school, any private school in Nashville that you want to go to. You tell us what school you want to go to. You tour the schools. You tell us and we'll pay for it. And so I got to tour all the schools. And of course, you know, I toured, I will say, I will admit, I toured the all-girls schools, and I was like, no, not going there. There's no boys there. <laughs> <laughs> not doing that. They were great schools, but I 
you know, I was like, no, 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 definitely need to go to school with boys there too. So anyways, but toured all the schools and ended up going to Montessori for middle school. And then the same thing happened for high school. They said, okay, where do you want to go to high school? Toured all the schools. I ended up at Father Ryan. And at Father Ryan, I had incredible, and again, that was exactly where God wanted me. Mm-hmm. And even though my decision may have been related to boys, right? you know, <laughs> God had bigger plans than that. He did not want me there for the boys. There were teachers there that, that literally, there was a big gap in my learning. And these teachers would come, they would meet me before school started to tutor me. They would meet me at school breaks to tutor me. They would meet me at lunch to tutor me. They would meet me after school to tutor me. I mean, they poured and poured and poured and poured into me. And when I went to go apply for colleges, I remember, you know, there was there's still all this doubt around. I thought at that point I'd proven so many people wrong about my capabilities. Mm-hmm. And still I remember there were people around me saying, like not in my family, but in the child welfare system and DCS, you know, there are people around me that would say, well, and maybe this is good advice and it could be advice that I give to my own children. But in my mind, the advice was kind of based off a place of doubt. Right. And they said, oh, like you don't need to just only apply to your top tier one school. Like you need to apply to multiple schools. Like you need to apply to multiple schools so that if you don't get into your top your number one school, you have a backup plan. And that sounds, that does sound smart. And that does sound like sound advice. But for me, that that was a, are they doubting me? Like, are they doubting me again? Haven't I proven everybody wrong thus far? And I actually told them no. I was like, I'm only applying to one school because I, that's the school I'm going to. I'm only applying to one school. And so I applied to Belmont and got into Belmont and ended up obviously loving my time at Belmont. And I turned 18 and I had moved out of my foster mom's house. And, you know, it was interesting, you know, I'm moving into the dorm. And one of the things that I noticed, like on move-in day, you know, I've always been like, a, I just always get it done. And I literally, I was there alone on move-in day. And I like look around and I see all these families that are with their kids moving, like moving their kids into college. And I'm alone moving myself into my dorm. And, you know, so it's moments like that, that it hits you. You're like, oh yeah, like, I okay. Like I'm in a different boat than most people. So I did age out of foster care. Mm-hmm. I was not adopted. I spent essentially on paper from the time that I turned three years old to 18 in foster care. And then I basically did something that's called, like I signed myself back into state's custody at 18 Mm -hmm. so that I can continue to receive services beyond my 18th birthday since I was in college. That's only an option if you're going to college. So if you're less than the 1% of foster kids that go to college, you have this option to basically sign yourself back into state's custody, deal with a caseworker. All caseworkers are not bad. All are not great, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, some are incredible, though. And so I had a mix of all of them. But you you have to that's what you have to do in order to receive the state's benefits post 18. Okay, so that's what I did. But at 18, I just, you know, I had this thought of like, what 
like you just breathe a sigh of relief of like, okay, I'm out of the system that has just dominated my life. I'm out of the system that saved my life. Right. There are good things and bad things that happened as a result of that. And what am I going to do with all this? And I felt like that's really where like the Lord met me and was like, no, you you take action. Because there's one part of you that just wants to walk away from the foster care system and pretend like that is long, that I'm past that. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to go back to that. All those memories and all that trauma, good or bad, right. all those things, like I just want to walk away from this. And then there's this other part of you that says, I don't want other people to go through what I went through. And mm-hmm. if I could just educate and if I could just advocate and if I could just do all these things, it would make it a little bit better for the next person. And so at 18, um, I was a freshman at Belmont. And basically, I got this opportunity. The founder of UPS created this organization that was called the Jim Casey Youth Opportunities Initiative. And it was this organization focused on kids aging out of foster care and improving outcomes for kids aging out of foster care. And one of the things that they found in their research was the biggest indicator for success of kids aging out of foster care was a connection to a caring adult. And for me, I had an incredible foster mom who didn't have all the financial resources to do for me. But then I had the doctor and his wife that really were the financial, they were not just financial though. I don't want to make it sound like that was their only involvement because I would go to TPAC plays. I would go to the opera. I'm glad I didn't have to do that very, you know, too many times. (laughs) (laughs) I would go to charity fundraiser events with them. Mm -hmm. Like they, they took me all sorts of places and If I wanted to go to church camp, they paid for me to go to church camp. If I wanted to take singing lessons, which I did, I took singing lessons and they paid for it. I did take dance lessons and that lasted one year. And I saw myself on video whenever they came out with the recital tapes. And I thought, (laughs) oh my gosh, I don't ever need to get back on a stage again. That's hilarious. It was awful. I can still see myself in the outfit, in the costume and on video. And I'm a little traumatized by my hairstyle, all of it. And so I saw that one video and I was like, never again, never again, never again. But you know, I, when I was a teenager and younger and skinnier and all those things, like I modeled and they paid for all, like all my headshots and my travel related to that. And I mean, they, I had the opportunities that I had because I had their support Mm -hmm. and I took those opportunities because I had people around me that believed in me. Right. And so at 18, I knew that not every child has what I have. Like not every kid in foster care has that. My birth brother came to live with me as a teenager and it was the first home that he had ever been in. He didn't know how to operate in a normal family. He had spent his entire life in a group home, and he truly did not know how to operate beyond that locked gate. Right. He just didn't. And he really, his life, like he just was stealing stuff, and he put my family in, you know, I felt like he really put my family in a position to where he was taking all the attention and the time and the energy and the effort, like, and here we were trying to mitigate all these bad behaviors. And finally, I remember just giving my foster mom, my mom, I call her my mom, but 
um, I remember giving her permission, like, you don't have to do this anymore. Like, uh. you've we've tried. He didn't accept this opportunity. And you tried. And thank you for trying. But it's not fair to everybody else for all the attention. He was such a distraction to the things that were already going on in the home. Right. Like, it was a good, like, we didn't, none of the rest of us were out committing crimes and right. <laughs> stealing stuff. And, right. you know, we... We were grateful for the opportunity to have a safe and loving home to live in. And he he just he just wasn't. And so he at 18, he aged out of the group home and literally within months of aging out of the group home, he resorted to a life of crime and committed an armed burglary and is he went in for like 12 years was his first sentence. Wow. And he got out a little I think he got out about it, probably after eight years. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he got back out again, he committed a series of another series of armed robberies. And they actually ended up sentencing him to 30 years in prison. Wow. 30 years. And because of he, he was a repeat convicted felon. And, and I forgot what the news, I, I saw it. I have, you know, I saw it on a news article and, you know, it just made me so sad because I thought, gosh, if he had he had the same opportunity and the same love and had he had just been given a chance. Right. Where would he be? At a different stage in life. Like, where would he be? Or had he just taken that one chance that he was given? And, and it's sad to think because, you know, maybe I'm going to make assumptions here, but maybe like when you were raised, you probably were able to make some mistakes Mm -hmm. and your family forgave you and you moved on and became the person you are today Mm -hmm. because you had multiple chances. Right. But when you're a kid in foster care, like I remember growing up and I knew I could not make a misstep. I knew if I ended up at a high school party that had something that shouldn't have been there, that that would be my only chance. And so I never went to a high school party because I was like, nope, in (laughs) in college, even though I was free, I didn't do that either. It was because I knew if I made one misstep, my whole life would be ruined and it wasn't worth it. But all of my peers, you know, if they did something stupid, it's okay. Like your parents may be mad at you, but they're going to forgive you. For me, I knew I don't even want to call it a mistake if I made a bad decision Mm -hmm. because it's a decision, right? Right. It's not a mistake. But if I made a bad decision, I would end up in a group home and my whole life and future would be changed forever because of that one bad decision. And so I really, I really stayed on the straight and narrow all throughout my childhood because I was so afraid that I would ruin my life. And I knew, I knew that what I had been given was so special Mm -hmm. and I cherished it so much and I appreciated it so much and people believed in me and I didn't want to let anybody down, including myself, right? Including myself. So anyway, so at 18, I became part of this youth council and part of the initiatives that were around this youth council were to improve outcomes for kids aging out of foster care. And so one of the first initiatives that I worked on was a suitcase drive for foster kids Mm -hmm. so that they didn't have to carry their belongings in a garbage bag and collected over 2,500 pieces of luggage. Wow. As in, I may have been 19 at this point. But it was pretty incredible. It was an incredible feeling to be a part of something that was so tangible and something that I knew would just give a little 
youth a little bit of dignity and honor mm-hmm. when they're moving. And so I, I did that. And then one of the next things that I worked on with some others on the council as well was I went to the state capitol and started lobbying for tuition waiver legislation so that kids who age out of foster care, if they want to go to college, if the state is their parent and the state has made all the decisions for this child up until this point, just like a parent would help their child with college tuition, mm-hmm. not all the times, right. but a lot of times, right. I wanted the state to help kids that were aging out of foster care because you're talking about the less than 1% of kids that are going to college for foster kids. It's literally you're 60 times more likely to be incarcerated and 60 times less likely to earn a bachelor's degree. Like, how can we equalize the playing field? And so that was one of the initiatives that I worked on. And so that legislation ended up being passed. And I can't, the last time I counted, um, somebody asked me to get a count some time ago and I emailed the state to ask them, you know, how many, how many students, like mm-hmm. how many foster kids have taken advantage of the scholarship? And the, I can't even remember what the number was, but it was astounding. And I just thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, we all want to leave our mark and have a legacy. And like, if, if there's anything incredible that I've been a part of, that's probably one of the most incredible things that I was able to be a part of. That impact. And so happy and so glad that I can even still say today that that's something that's still going and foster kids are taking advantage of it. And, and it's really something special to know that just leaving that little mark. And so anyhow, so then after that, I obviously I worked with Belmont University as a student to raise money for endowed scholarships for foster kids there. And, and again, I was a, just a student at the time and really challenged uh, leadership over at Belmont to open housing during the holidays because I had a friend who went to Emory and every Christmas break, she slept in her car. Mm-hmm. She was homeless. I mean, she, here she was go- at Emory and she's homeless because college housing closes during the holidays and she had nowhere to go. And... So she'd sleep in her car. And so I thought, you know, if we can open housing, if we open a section of housing for international students, like this is something that we can contemplate for students that have nowhere to go. Right. And I mean, Christmas breaks a month long. And so that's a long time to be sleeping in your car. And so anyhow, so a lot of universities picked up on that and started offering housing to foster kids when campus housing was closing. And, you know, I've, I've just continued to try to stay involved. I graduated from Belmont and ended up working for a former vice president and running their family office. And then following that, I was offered a position over at Belmont to raise money for endowed scholarships and run their donor relations program. And then I went over to a company that is actually just down the road from here. Um, I worked at a company called Cumberland Trust, and it was a multi-billion dollar trust company and was a strategist. And I spent, that was the last seven years of my career. And then I got this crazy idea that I still don't know if I made the right decision, but I got this (laughs) crazy idea that maybe working with my husband would be a great idea. So for a little, I guess, over the last 14 months, my husband owns a construction company and I've been working with my husband. And I always like to joke and say I'm on this three-day rotation, like day one. I'm like, this is great. I'm so glad I did this. 
Day two is what in the world was I thinking? I quit. <laughs> Day three, James fires me. And then we and go then back. You start to, over. Then I start over. <laughs> and so, you know, on any given day, you could be like, hey, how do you love your job? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to go back and work for corporate America. I worked way less when I worked in corporate America. <laughs> and then on other days, I'm like, oh, this is the best thing in the world. I get to sip, you know, I, I'm joking. I get to sit by the pool and drink coffee. No, that's not what I do. He makes me work too much. So, Anyways, um, but we live, um, we've got two girls. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and they're so smart. And I, I literally, the things that they tell me, I'm like, I don't, if they're like, Mommy, you should know this. Like, you went to graduate school. And I'm like, I really don't know that. And I'm like, I can't help you with your homework anymore. And I just use the excuse, like, they teach things differently now than they did then. So that's yes. my excuse for not knowing I mean, you know, I'm already there and he's just five. Yeah, yeah. I, that's I, my excuse yeah. for not knowing sixth grade. <laughs> he wanted to know about coding. And I was like, mommy didn't learn about that. I'm too old. <laughs> and he was like, why don't you go back to college? And I was like, I think I will let you do that. Yes. I think it's so funny that I, I legitimately wrote this question down. Okay. And verbatim almost you said it and then answered it. Oh. Um, and I just, I'm going to go back and talk to this because I feel like since I wrote it down and since you brought it up, God must want me to like okay. touch on that there. My question was that I think a lot of people have been through a lot of deep heartache and life change. And a lot of people may survive that and then say, I'm not looking back. Mm -hmm. And so to sit across from you and to hear your story, I just, I was going to ask, why are you able to, and how are you willing to speak of the things that you have been through in your life? And I just, you literally said it and, yeah. and you said you had that moment. And I feel like so many people, it might not look the same. Mm -hmm. It might, you know, the trauma might be different, but I think a lot of people have the opportunity to make the choice that you made and to have the perspective of what can I do with this? Mm -hmm. What would God ask me to do with this? Because God works all things to the good. And I, that's part of this podcast is the in the unexpected. God might not have done the thing mm -hmm. that broke you or that hurt you, but he will turn it to the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you made that choice. You made the choice to say, I will go back. I will revisit the pain. I will speak mm -hmm. to this. And I will be an advocate for it because you have come through it. And who better to speak to something than the person that comes out of it? You know, I think sometimes there's a lot of shame associated mm -hmm. with our trauma. And so I even think back to when, you know, if I didn't have my husband's permission to share this, I wouldn't share this. But I go back to when James and I first got married, and James grew up in the church and was a pastor's kid and loved Jesus, and he fell into addiction right after we got married. And I remember out of all—we had such good friends, and I never told a single person. I never—I kept his secret. And I remember there being a day of where I said, I'm not keeping your secret anymore. And you know, I told James, I said, you know, you, Savannah was a baby and she was a couple of months old. And I just, you know, I told him, I said, I've, you know, my whole life I've gone through so much trauma. This is a choice now for me to be here and I'm not going to be here anymore. Right. And I emailed an attorney and copied him on the email. And I said, 
I want a divorce. Here's how it will all be split because he wouldn't get the help that he needed. Mm -hmm. And I literally, I remember like he ended up, thank God, thank God, he ended up going to rehab and gosh, here he is now like 12 years sober. Thank God. But I remember so the shame. Mm. The, there was so much shame. And I literally, I didn't tell a soul. Like I had incredible friends that would have loved me and supported me and been there for me. Incredible friends. And I, I didn't tell a soul. And so, you know, a lot of times we suffer in silence. Sure. And so what I think back to now is, you know, God, thank God he was there and, and James, like literally, if, if, you know, James could share a story one day, but gosh, the way God met him in that moment and the reflection he saw back in the mirror, he got the help he needed. And he used you. But it really was. Yeah. It, and it's sad. It's sad that it got even to that point, that I let it get to that point. But because I always believed, I'm like, I knew who he was without addiction. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, on some level, you're hanging on to the fact that, like, no, I like, he's an incredible, like, he's an incredible person. But then there's this addiction that just takes over. And, you know, and even in my own foster family, like, I, we've had, you know, there have been other siblings of mine that have struggled with addiction. And it's really the one of the most heartbreaking journeys to walk with someone mm-hmm. and especially to walk it when you're a mom with an infant and... It's it's difficult regardless of where you're sitting, whether you're a sister, a brother, a mother, mm. a, wherever you're sitting. But, you know, after James got sober and, and thank God he got sober and years later, um, you know, I told you about the doctor and his wife and he was actually killed by a drunk driver. And so on one hand, you, you like you come full circle to oh my gosh, that could have been my husband. Mm. That could have been my husband. Like years ago, that could have been my husband. The guy that killed Eric was, he was a repeat offender and he was on house arrest when he ran the red light and, and killed Eric. And so Eric was the one who walked me down the aisle. He was the one who invested in my private education and took me to all the TPAC plays, he and his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, addiction is another one of those things that there's just so much shame. So whether it's abuse or addiction or divorce or whatever it may be, God doesn't want us to go through those things alone. Mm -hmm. God wants us to be surrounded by people that lift us up and then encourage us. And when we're able to overcome whatever that obstacle is and whether it's abuse or, or you know, like in my situation, obviously abuse, but when we overcome the things that have happened to us, I feel like it's a part of our responsibility to help others overcome the same thing. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes people don't have hope. And when they hear a story like mine or they, or, you know, when my husband shares his own testimony of how God met him at the lowest point of his life in addiction and he shares that journey now. And because he shares that journey, other people are able to come to sobriety right. and get the help that they need. And it's the same thing for whatever, you know, whatever you're going through. So for me, abuse, like there's nothing more powerful for me than being able to sit in front of a child that is sitting in state's custody right now that has no home to go to, to say, I know 
that what you're going through is hard, but I promise you, keep hope and keep fighting because what you're doing is worth it. And one day you're going to look back on this day and you're going to appreciate the adversity that you've overcome. And for me, I think that that's a part of our responsibility when we go through these things is Mm -hmm. to share and and to encourage. And ironically, my sister-in-law actually works for DCS and the stories I hear will just completely break your heart. And they have been, my sister-in-law could not, she actually could not come to my birthday dinner the other night because they have four kids that can't find homes and they are taking shifts around the clock at DCS to stay at DCS and the kids are sleeping at DCS. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here she is, she gets up, she's there at DCS at eight o'clock in the morning. She's supposed to get off at five o'clock, but instead she's taking the eight o'clock to the midnight shift to stay at DCS because they have kids there that have no homes. So for me, I still get an insider's view of how broken the system is. And I think that if I have any one message from today, it's that we all play a part and government is not the solution to this. Mm -hmm. This is not something that can be fixed by the government. In my mind, this is churches being involved. These are people that love Jesus saying, I will be the hands and feet of Jesus Mm -hmm. because that's what I had in my life. I had so many people that were the hands and feet of Jesus for me that literally poured into my life so that I could be sitting here today. And if those people weren't the hands and feet of Jesus, if you look at my story and you say, okay, we're going to remove this one component, like we're going to remove Tori and Eric from your life and say Tori and Eric never came along and they never paid for your education. They never took you to do those things. You never got to go to church camp. You never got to go on vacations or you never got to take singing. It would be good if I didn't have to take dance again. That was good. (laughs) Um, But, you know, let's say we take away that one thing. What would your story look like? And the story completely changes mm-hmm. because God used all of those people to make me who I am today. He's and, in and the details. Yeah, he is in the details. And, you know, it, it's heartbreaking to know that we've got kids sitting and sleeping in DCS office. Like one of the things my sister-in-law told me, and it literally just broke my heart, was she said there were two kids. They found placements for a couple. It's been night to night. Every day is... They don't know who's going to get a temporary replacement that night and who's not. This one particular night, there were two kids, and she said one of them got placement. And she said the other one was so heartbroken because he was like, why can't I find, why can't I find a bed? Why can't I find a family to go home to tonight? Like, so heartbroken. And it, you know, it just makes me, you know, it just make it breaks my heart. Like, we... We have kids that are sleeping in DCS offices. And so with that said, there are lots of organizations that are trying to improve and trying to step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus. This is not a Nashville government, Tennessee government needs to do better. Yes, we all know that everything run by the government could be run better. You know, if Mm -hmm. only the Chick-fil-A, Truett, Kathy family could run the government (laughs) and then things would run a lot more efficiently, but they don't. And, you know, the government doesn't have all the answers and they can't fix this alone. And, 
you know, some of the organizations that I think do a really incredible job. I'm so excited about what Chris and Lauren Tomlin are doing right now with four others. They're trying to create a platform Mm -hmm. so that we can connect foster youth with mentors. Because again, it kind of, it goes back to that decades old research of what makes a child successful? What's what's the key indicator for success? What's the difference? That support system. And it's the support system. It's that connection to a caring adult is the single most important thing. And so they're honing right in on that and creating a platform where mentors and mentees can connect. So I think what they're doing is pretty phenomenal and really inspired by what they're doing. And then... Um, Tennessee Kids Belong is obviously a really phenomenal organization in town. And then obviously our church, you know, we go to the Church of the City in Franklin. Mm-hmm. And they I don't know if you've heard about this, but they are building something called The Village. Okay. And they are actually going to be housing an emergency shelter housing for foster kids that don't have placement. So instead of a, a child sleeping at DCS, our church is actually building a building so that they can sleep in a home environment and maybe we'll have, they haven't figured out how to staff that yet. If they're going to have, it'll probably be a combination of DCS employees Mm -hmm. in addition to volunteers. And then there will also be a restaurant where they start training foster kids in the culinary arts and among other things. So it's just, and it's a multifaceted building. They've got a couple of different initiatives in addition to foster kids Mm -hmm. and mental health and single moms and cars and right but i'm really excited about what they're doing i mean there's really lots of ways to be involved and i think that the most important thing to know is that you know no we're not all called to be a foster parent we're not all in a place in life where we can say yes we're going to be a foster parent now but we are called to care and we are called to take action and so what you may do may look different than what another family may do, but we are called to care for widows and orphans. And that is the church. We are the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is the church. It's not specifically in a building or, you know, or an institution. It is, it's us. It's yeah. us going out and loving people and showing them what Jesus has done for us. And I don't know. I just think that that's, that's what it's all about. And again, I'm blown away that you have had the heart and the vulnerability to share all the things that have happened to you. I don't know. I just hope that people out there listening will take this and say, maybe I could do a better job of going back and seeing where God's hand was. Mm-hmm. That's taken years, too. I want I want to say that it wasn't at 18 that all of this was just Sure. Revealed to me. You know, I think a lot of that came with age and it came with maturity. It came with growing my faith Mm -hmm. and and really being able to step back and say, oh, like I remember seeing her at all of those Christmas parties. And I remember thinking, oh, I wish I lived with someone like that. And then really connecting the fact that, oh my gosh, God answered that prayer without me acknowledging that he answered that prayer, but he answered that prayer and that thought that I had as a kid in the most unexpected way. Like I got to go live with Miss Extra 
And actually, today's her birthday. Oh, happy birthday. So I actually was on the phone with her in the car, you know, on my way, on my way here. I was on the phone with her wishing her a happy birthday. And she is over 80. I don't even, she would be really upset if I ever disclosed that, but she is over 80. And I think maybe she's 81 this year. And she is just as fabulous as she was the day I moved in with her. She has not lost any of her extra or her spunk. Even my children, when we go to Florida to visit her, they'll raid her closet and they'll be like, Mom, why don't you buy shoes like this? And I mean, she has these fabulous stiletto boots that are like from Paris. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, children, I, you know, it's nice to wear slides and flip-flops and (laughs) sneakers like I don't need to be wearing stiletto boots but no I mean my mom she's remarkable and what a life to celebrate yeah she's she's an incredible woman she spent literally her entire her entire life taking care of other people and caring for kids in foster care and I can't I can't even begin to count how many kids she had go through the doors of her home and truly you know an unsung hero and so grateful that God put that on our heart so many years ago. My life was surely changed by that, and I know a lot of other kids' lives were too. So yeah, it's 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 going to have its effects, you know, through the generations. Right, that we will things that we will never see. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, just think about even my own kids. Like the cycle of abuse stopped with me, and the cycle doesn't continue now for another mm-hmm. generation. And Again, kind of going back, like God gives us these experiences to share and and to bring hope and encouragement to others. And I hope that in our brief time today, I hope that people can see how Jesus has impacted my life so much and was really in the details. And the life that I have today wouldn't have been possible without people being the hands and feet of Jesus as well. Wow. I love that. I love that. And I love you for coming in and sharing that. And I know that anyone listening is going to see that well or hear that, I guess, by listening to your story. You've got a beautiful family, a beautiful marriage, and you came from a lot of brokenness. And through it, I mean, you said it at the beginning, God said, I chose you. I chose you. I chose you. Mm -hmm. Even though, and this is just me listening back to you, you know, that family, when you were at the institution, they said they were coming back for you mm-hmm. and they didn't come back for you Yeah, and your mom and just this repeated feeling like you have not been chosen by anyone, mm-hmm. but God saying, I chose you, I chose you, I chose you, and I love you enough to call you to do these things and to give hope for others at the end of it. And so... I just think it's a really beautiful thing, and I think you are a special woman. And I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening today. We will be piecing in interviews with people in the months to come, but I'm I'm just really thankful that we kicked off with such a special heart today. So, Stacy, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. If this episode has encouraged you, please feel free to share it with your family and friends. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world today, and my hope is that this show is a candle in the dark.